This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So, Paul Verschur here um, with the Barcelona Cognition Brain Technology uh, Summer School talking to uh, Kevin O'Regan. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Um, and... What you presented at the summer school also very much related to to your book that just came out. Um, What's the title of your book? The title of the book is Why Red Doesn't Sound Like a Bell, Um, Understanding the Feel of Consciousness with Oxford University Press. You can buy it on Amazon. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, but now in some sense, the challenge for for the talk here was to say, okay, um, how can we build robots that feel? Right, and then sort of the problem you started out with is okay, if we have this closing scene of I think it was Terminator Three where he ends up in the in the, the boiling Bath vat oil, with yes. uh, with burning oil, whatever it was, would this Terminator feel pain or not? And and this is in some sense how you start to address this whole question of feel and, and qualia. So so what what's your answer to this question, and, and how do you get to that answer? <laughs> so the, the in one word the answer is yes. Uh, in fact, Terminator would feel the, the, the pain, um, even though it sounds surprising at first. And I think that to understand this, you have to think about feel in a new way and realize that it's not something that is generated in some magical way by biological organisms, but it's a way of talking about the capacities that biological organisms have, uh, just like life is a capacity or a a, uh, a property of the way organisms interact with the world, as soon as you have something like Terminator who interacts with the world in certain ways, then what we mean by feel is that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new. You don't have to build anything into a robot for it to feel. Uh, once it behaves in, in the way that we call having a feel, well, then it has a feel. Okay, but then, then you run the risk that, that in some this is true by definition. That's right. Right. So this is now what we have to inspect in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Uh, I, as I was saying in uh, in my book, and as I was saying in the talk I gave today at BCBT, um, it's really a matter of um, a trick. It's a trick, a scientific trick that we can play that lets us think about things in a new way. I think that what happened with life at the beginning of the 20th century was the same trick. So what happened was the vitalist at the beginning of the 20th century thought that in order to explain how certain organisms possessed life, uh, you had to postulate some élan vital or some vital spirit that kind of imbued life into these organisms. But gradually it became clear over the 20th century that this was the wrong way of thinking about life and that it was a better way of thinking about life to say that life is just a word that applies to certain organisms that interact with their environment in a certain way. They can reproduce, they metabolize, they, they, they breathe, you know, they move, and uh, it's a matter of definition to say that uh, 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 whether or not an organism is alive. Is a, is a virus alive? Is a bacterium alive? These are matters of definition. Uh, and in, I suggest that taking the same stance with regard to feel and saying that feel is a certain way of interacting with the environment solves the problem of the magic of feel mm-hmm. But but you have, um, in that redefinition, you have actually anchored that by looking at very specific problems around this notion of qualia, 
right? Where, where, where you looked at, um, let's say, ineffability, the, impo the impossibility to communicate mm -hmm. these states, um, the structure to feel, and also the presence of feel. Right. right? So, so, so what's the transition there exactly if we go to these apparently, let's say, unsolvable problem, this hard problem of qualia, mm -hmm. which is right. summarized in these three key properties? How do we now resolve that if we take this sensory motor view? Okay, so I think classically, uh, if you think about feel in the normal way that most people think about it as being somehow generated by the brain, it becomes rather mysterious to understand how it could be, for example, that the brain could generate the feel of redness uh, and that this feel would be different from the feel of greenness. How, how could the brain do, do this? You know, how, uh, what kind of neural mechanism could we envisage that would generate two different kinds of feel? Uh, and... Um, also, how could one generate a new, uh, something in the brain that could make it feel like something to have the feel of redness or to have a pain rather than feeling like nothing? These are, these are the classic problems that the philosophers uh, put forward to uh, when they talk about what they call the hard problem of consciousness, namely the question of why there's something it's like to have a feel. And uh, my idea is that um, in order to overcome the difficulty that the philosophers have with the uh, feel, um, taking the stance according to which feel is a way of talking about the capacity that an organism has to interact with its environment, taking this stance allows us to, to solve these, these, these mysteries about feel. So my first step in my book is to try and uh, decide what exactly the mysterious aspects are. And one of the mysterious aspects is the fact that feels are considered to be first person and ineffable, that's to say not communicable to others. A second mystery is the fact that feels um, have a structure, like uh, they, they can be compared and contrasted. For example, red is more similar to pink than it is to green. Uh, sometimes they cannot be compared and contrasted. For example, red is completely uncomparable to the smell of onion uh, or to the sound of a bell. Um, so how do you explain uh, these facts? Uh, that is one of the mysteries. That's the second mystery, in fact, of feel. The first one is ineffability. The second one is the structure of feels. And the third uh, mystery is really the most profound mystery, which is why feels have something it's like. Um, why do people say it feels like something rather than it feels like nothing? That's the question of sensory presence. And I think that if you take this new stance, this new, what I call, sensory motor approach, uh, you can overcome those. Mm -hmm. But now in, in, in analyzing these problems, in some sense, you, you're already biased by, by, let's say, the sensory motor paradigm that you want to take, right? For instance, if you look at uh, this issue of the sensory presence, where you were making a distinction between, let's say, subconscious autonomic processes versus, let's say, sensory processes, saying okay, these, you're not consciously aware, there, there's no qualia, there's no feel as such attached to the level of, of oxygen in your blood, right? Um, while if you talk about, indeed, red or bottles or sound studios and so on, there, there would be some content to that. But the argument was made there, that this was also Bjorn Merker who, who made that point, that, well, actually, in terms of the feel, Right? There can be a very strong feel when oxygen levels reach a certain lower bound, right? Mm -hmm. When the sort of homeostatic regulation starts to become unstuck, there will there might be a very strong feel 
Um, so what does it mean then with respect to this notion of sensory presence and is it sensory always towards the external world yeah. or does it also include an internal world? Right, so uh, I think classically even from the Greek philosophers onwards uh, there's always been this idea that there were five basic senses you know, hearing, seeing, uh, tasting, smelling and uh, touch and the que- these these five basic sense modalities, they seem to have something special about them as compared to other uh, uh, senses. So f- what you were referring to is, for example, the feeling of suffocating when, I, when I'm out of breath or uh, the feeling of being tired when, when I've got too little glucose in my bu- blood, for example. Um, these are perhaps also feelings, but they have somehow a different nature. They don't seem quite so present, I should say. There's, it, there's, there's less of something it's like to have them. Our everyday world is essentially composed of uh, in, information or sensations we get from these five basic sense modalities. So what I would like to do is explain why there's something special about these. Um, obviously, feeling tired and feeling the feeling of suffocation or f- or, or the feeling of the posture that you're adopting when you sit, for example, or when you stand. These are these certainly are things you can bec- become aware of, but whereas one feels the pain one, and one sees the redness, one doesn't somehow feel the, your posture or feel your tiredness in the same way. Well, mm. I think it's arguable. I think one can discuss it. Maybe it's, there's a continuum. Maybe one shouldn't make right. a break. But that, but that's, I think, yeah. the issue, right? Would you would yeah. you accept a continuum? Absolutely, there? yes. Yeah, I think it, it's not a, it's not a, a, a critical challenge. Absolutely to your theory, not. No, right? no, no. In but, fact, but, yeah. In fact, no. In fact, I would like to explain uh, all the aspects right. of the continuum. I'd like to explain well why is it that uh, that the philosophers for centuries have distinguished these five sensory modalities as being somehow different and somehow special. Mm-hmm. I would have to account for that in in my approach. Exactly. Right. So, but now, now there, there are two steps we have to make, right? So, on the one hand, if you look at the state of the art in the field, when we, when we deal with qualia from a scientific perspective, not necessarily a philosophical one, you would say, okay, so now we're going to look for neurocorrelates, right? We're, we're going to have people experience different things. We're going to try to control this in some way. We're going to have people report whether they experience uh, certain things. And now we're going to look at what neurons are doing mm-hmm. in, in, in relation to these kinds of experiences. So wh- why is that not helping us? So that would certainly be the first uh, impulse of the average scientist today would be to look for the neural correlates. Yeah. And uh, so, so supposing they were to find uh, that that red, that neurons that were strongly correlated with the sensation of red were these neurons, and the neurons that were strongly correlated with the sensation of green were those neurons. And uh, this was true in every human being, and uh, it was just 100% correlation. And then, I would, then, then we could ask, well, what is it about those red conveying neurons that gives that red feel mm-hmm. rather than the green feel? And uh, we could look into the neurons, and maybe we would find that it was a special neurotransmitter, for example, that the red neurons had that the green neurons didn't have. And then you could ask, well, what is it about the neurotransmitter in the red neurons that gives that red feeling? And you could say, well, maybe it's uh, maybe it's because they have an extra nitrogen atom or something. And whatever you do, there's always going to be another question. You, 
whatever answer you give to the question, well, why does it give the red feeling rather than the green feeling, there's always going to be another question. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a logical, there's a logical um, barrier here. There's what the philosophers called an explanatory gap, because it just doesn't seem possible. Logic. This is a logical question. It doesn't seem to be logically possible to make the the to bridge this gap between a description in terms of neurophysiological parameters and a description in terms of parameters that will explain the redness of red. Mm-hmm. Right. So. So it's also on those grounds you say, look, throwing more, let's say, measurements at the problem will not solve the right. problem. We have to really jump out of this box right. and find a new box, right? And the key thing is that the neural correlate approach would give you this infinite regress. So, so it's, it's, it's like an unconstrained approach to this issue of, of subjective experience. But now... What is this alternative? How, how, do, how do we resolve this issue? How are we going to solve this hard problem? So this is the trick that I'm suggesting. Exactly. And it's a trick, as I said, similar to the trick that was used to solve the problem of life. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, or some people might say, well, we still haven't solved the problem of life because life is a wonderful, poetic thing. Um, and uh, obviously what life really is is something that's much richer than you know DNA replication uh, all the stuff we know and have learned over the last century uh, or no I should say that since Crick and Watson discovered the double helix mm-hmm. all this uh, is very interesting but it isn't really life is it and I would counter to that and I say it may not be it may not give you uh, a good description of the poetry of life but it is pretty good science that's been done and what I suggest is that we should adopt the same tactic uh, as regards feel. Mm-hmm. So are you with that saying that that life as such in the traditional sense is not a natural category, it's not really a natural phenomenon that we can nail down in reality? And the same thing holds for, for the qualia? The, the term natural, natural quality, what did you say? A natural, a natural phenomenon. A natural it's like this yeah. cup is a natural phenomenon because... Not only can I touch it, but I can make, let's say, objective measurements about it. And if I'm given that, I can have some, let's say, belief that this is actually a physical object in, in the world that exists in and of itself I mean, without, I, without needing further subjective experience. I think in science there are concepts that are like the cup, mm-hmm. which are things. Uh, but And there are other concepts which are more abstract, like, for example, the concept of force, the concept of force, uh, the concept of pressure, the concept of predator, for example. These are ideas or abstractions that are very useful to do science with, but you can't really say that they are real things. They're defined in functional terms, and I think life is mm-hmm. is is best to deci- defined in in those functional terms rather than being considered a thing like a cup. Right, exactly, and the same thing holds for qualia. Yeah. And so, but then, so now, what, what is your trick? Well, so, what's our redef? What's this redefinition that would also help us in overcome these three fundamental problems you pointed out earlier? So, the trick is to suggest that when we think really, try and understand what we really mean by having a feel. Um, what we really mean is a w- that we are currently interacting with the world in a certain way. So, let me take the the analogy of softness. Um, if you were a neurophysiologist, you might go looking in the brain for a neuron that generates that softness feel. 
And I'm suggesting the following trick. I suggest that if you think about what softness really means, take uh, the example of a sponge. The softness of a sponge is not a thing that's generated in the brain. The softness of a a sponge is a way that the sponge behaves when you press on it. A a, a sponge is soft uh, when, if you press on it, it squishes under your pressure. So the softness is actually nowhere to be found. Softness is an abstraction. And the feeling softness means that you are currently engaged in an interaction with a sponge that obeys the laws of softness. So this is why I call my approach the sensory motor approach. It's sensory motor because we have motor actions, namely pressing on the sponge, and we have sensory input, namely the the squishiness, the fact that the sponge seeds under my pressure. And the law, uh, the sensory motor law that's obeyed is the law that describes the softness. Mm -hmm. So the key thing is that we have, let's say, a closed loop now between an agent and its environment. And this loop is regulated by certain, let's say, irreducible properties. These are the laws you would, you would have in Why mind. Why do you say irreducible? Well, if, if, let's say the law is, is, let's say, a fundamental building block to, to maintain this dynamic relation. Or it describes an irreducible component of that interaction, like the squashiness of the sponge. Yeah would then not be reducible any further. You cannot go below that squashiness to deal with feel. No, I'm not following you. I think that that uh, um, this, the, the softness of a sponge is a, is, um, is a fact about the way you can interact w- with, a, with a sponge. Mm-hmm. It, I wouldn't say it's somehow irreducible. I would say it's just one law that describes possible ways of interacting mm-hmm. with sponges. Yeah, but the f- isn't the field tied to a certain level of that interaction? Like for instance, the, if, I'm, if I'm squeezing your, this sponge, that means I'm generating forces with, mm-hmm. with, with, with my fingers. Um, I have sensation of pressure on my fingertips and of texture mm-hmm. on my fingerprints in correlation with this force that I generate. Right. And it's this whole correlated set of actions and reactions mm-hmm. and sensory states that now give you my feel. I wouldn't say they give the field, no, they, they, they constitute the field. Yes, that, right. that are the field. But if I would now go to a, a lower level of description, mm-hmm. where I say, well, okay, it's this set of, of muscle synergies that is moving this one finger, yeah. that is irrelevant. That it, is not part of the sensory motor law that defines the field. So that's what I meant with irreducible. Mm-hmm. At, at, below a certain level of description of, of that law, you don't gain information about the field. Yeah, I think the word irreducible is a bit odd there. I would rather say that the softness is an abstraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a sort of what the mathematicians might call an equivalence class. That's to say, you have you uh, whether you squish it with this finger or that finger, mm-hmm. whether you have these muscle groups or those muscle mm-hmm. groups that are involved, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. it, because the concept just requires uh, something more abstract to, to hold, namely the fact that when you exert pressure. It, it seeds under the pressure. Mm-hmm. So that is, it's a sort of higher level description of all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. that's happening at the lower level and all sorts of stuff that's, having, that's happening at the neurophysiological level that could be instantiated in a different way. For mm-hmm. example, it could, be, it could be a robot with a, some mechanical gripper, okay, or it could be you know, another animal rather than a human. And in, in all these cases, you could still ab- apply the same description. The, the problem with the notion of a sensory motor law is that uh, there, are, there are many different levels that you could, you could uh, 
descri describe this law. Like as you say, the pressure uh, could be could be uh, measured on e on this finger or on that finger, um, and so th there's a bit of ambiguity there as to as to exactly where you want to uh, put the level of description. Right. But, that's but couldn't you say that the, what you now call the sensor motor law is like let's say the subjective um, component of an affordance? Would you buy that? Would that be reasonable? Or is this a completely different ballpark? So, yeah, I mean, this sensory motor theory has often been compared to Gibson's right, exactly. notion of affordance. And there certainly is a, uh, a link there because uh, Gibson's idea of affordance is a, is a relation between sensory input and possible motor output. Um, but, but Gibson didn't think about the impact of this... this um, this notion of affordance for the philosophical problem sure, of understanding mm -hmm. feel and qualia mm -hmm. and sensations. Right. But essentially, I mean, one could say it's a, perhaps the same notion, although I would like to take it at an even deeper level. I don't think, for example, Gibson would have thought that redness is an affordance, mm -hmm. whereas I would really want to claim that the feel of red uh, is a way of interacting with red things. And I don't think Gibson would have gone so far with his notion of affordance. Sure, that that's true. But yeah. but you do agree that at some conceptual level they can be seen as complementary notions. So, well, they're certainly related. I mm -hmm. should say. I don't know. They're complementary. But there's an yeah. interesting consequence if we would if we would follow that up because in the affordance case it means the object intrinsically affords, let's say, a large number of of potential actions. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, it means the sponge might also then, then possibly lead to a, a, a potential of possible feels yeah. as opposed to only one. And I think this might be an interesting consequence of, of, of tying these two things yeah, together. Yeah, there's a relation there. Yeah. There's a relation there. But so as you say, the sponge affords a number of different actions that you can do with it. But I think Gibson, how would, how would Gibson have, uh, what would Gibson have said uh, Th th he would have used this f as a way of describing um, your perception of the sponge as an object. Mm -hmm. um, no, right, sure. Whereas I am trying to understand the, f the f let, well, let's say the perception of the sponge as a tactile object, okay? Um, whereas what I am trying to characterize is the feel itself, the raw, mm -hmm. I, I would say somehow the raw feel. Right. So I'm not sure exactly what the link, there clearly yeah. is some kind of link there. No, but why I was probing there was to see whether there was another way to think about what you call this sensor motor law. Yeah. Right? Because a law has, again, its own limitations as, as a construct. So maybe affordance, which seems to, to describe more really the intrinsic properties of objects, um, could, could maybe give us an, an alternative route into, into this understanding of sensor motor relationships as defining feel. But now that we have, so th this is the trick in some sense, right? This is the trick, and now the trick is on the table. But that, that then means that now you have the challenge to show how this trick solves yeah. these three problems, yeah. right? So of, of the incommunicability of, of feel, the structure, uh, the and, structure the, and the presence. Yeah, exactly. So, so can you do that? Okay, so let's take the ineffability, the yeah. non-communicability. If you think about, say, the softness of a sponge, um, mm. you know, it's hard to, to really describe in, in detail exactly what each of the individual 
muscle movements you make is when you squish the sponge it's hard to it's hard to know exactly which fingers you're using uh, um, and even at a neurophysiological level it's hard to say exactly which muscle groups are involved and so on uh, and so whereas you can say there's an abstract description of what's going on the real nitty-gritty of what is going on is something that escapes your uh, cognit your, your cognitive access. It's not something that you are aware of. So, so it, it's clear that while you know that the sponge is squishy and soft, uh, you can only you can only explain why you know this to a certain extent. Um, mm -hmm. So it makes sense that softness is something ineffable. And mm -hmm. so my claim would be that if I were able to use this way of thinking about all fields, not just softness, but red, say, um, that I could uh, and, and conceive of all fields as being sensory motor skills, then uh, it's clear that, that the ineffability would fall out of this, because it's very natural that when you're engaged in a skill, uh, you cannot describe in detail all the things you do when you engage in the skill. Mm -hmm. It's like whistling. Uh, you know, you can whistle perfectly well, but if I asked you exactly what position your tongue is in and how you move it around to get a high note or a low note, you probably just don't know. Right. But now, if, if so, some of you are saying, well, now I can implicitly communicate the feel because I have an operational definition. I can just look at what the other person is doing. I can sort of now, if I see you squeeze this sponge, in some sense, I can now start to relate to your feel because I could take it away from you and I could squeeze it myself and get a sense of what that feel would be for you. Mm -hmm. Is that a reasonable interpretation of how you would solve this? this well, problem? that's not part of, that is something, what you said there is more to do with kind of empathy and mm -hmm. how I can understand other people's feelings. Well, and express your middle because you, look, ah. I, I ask you, how does it feel? You can say, well, yeah. here, take it yourself, squeeze it. Oh, that's okay, how it okay. feels, right? I see what you mean, yeah. Mm -mm. But certainly, uh, the ineffability sort of falls out from this, uh, from from the idea that the feel itself is an abstraction, mm -hmm. and it's referring to a whole lot of nitty-gritty, low-level stuff mm -hmm. which you just cognitively don't have access to. Right, but, but that, that, so that's one one view on it. So in some sense, you say, well, ineffability, we should just accept. In some sense, right? You're saying, look, there, there, there are all these low-level processes; they don't enter consciousness. So ineffability is just a result of that, and it's not a problem. Uh, and it, they, the the low level processes they participate in the feel that you have. Sure. Okay. Because if they were to change, mm -hmm. it would be a different. Mm -hmm. You would feel them differently. So when you squish a sponge, you invoke certain muscle groups. When I squish a sponge, I invoke other muscle groups. Mm -hmm. And and if suddenly magically your and my muscles groups were somehow interchanged, mm -hmm. the softness would feel different mm -hmm. to each of us probably. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But but the but. But that is at a much lower level. And right. No, but you're just saying, look, the ineffability should be understood in terms of the constituent processes, right? Because they have all these nitty-gritty processes that, they, that are part of the, the squeezing actions and yeah. the sensations that it triggers. These all feed into the feel, and the feel I can experience, but not these constituent processes, right? So that's why we should just accept this ineffability. I don't know if it's true to say you don't feel the constituent processes. Mm -hmm. um, well, you will not feel, let's say, every single 
muscle contraction and so on, right? Or You're not aware of them, but I think that with practice, you know, there are these contortionist kind of people who can twitch individual muscles, you know, and right. and, and with and yogi type people, mm-hmm. they can they have very exquisite control mm-hmm. of certain muscles, and they uh, perhaps can in mm-hmm. such cases mm-hmm. modulate the fields, become more more diverse. Uh, so that would be a testable prediction, actually. Yeah, that would mean that the feel of a contortionist, of let's say curled around the chair, would be somehow more more rich. Yeah, than, exactly. You know, yeah. So I think this deals with the ineffability, but I think the real mystery that uh, that uh, approaches uh, that that faces neurophysiologists is, is the second mystery, which is <coughs> the mystery of um, the structure. The structure. But before we go to the structure, I wanted to test this idea that okay. ineffability. Uh, you're, you're saying, look, we should, ineffability is just an intrinsic property of fields because it is like a multi-layered phenomenon, if I understand it correctly. Yeah. But now I could say, but there's something interesting that you're doing because you are. Because you define the field as a sensory motor operation, I can actually see it. When you now experience drinking water, I can see you hold the cup and pour the water in your mouth. Yeah. So in that sense, there is now there is a communicable aspect to your field because I can now observe what you do. And I could engage, I say, my mirroring mechanisms to interpret it. I could try it myself and see what it feels like mm-hmm. and so on. So it's interesting that although you say, okay, it's just intrinsic, the ineffability, on the other hand, by defining it in these operational sensory motor terms, it becomes communicable to some extent. Yeah. Would you buy that, or that's well, in the irrelevant? Se- to the sense that we both have a word for softness, say. Exactly. Um, and and to the extent that you have experienced the softness using your motor groups and your mm-hmm. fingers and so on, and I have experienced the softness using my motor mm-hmm. groups and my uh, fingertips. Right. Um, when you see me uh, squish the sponge you can associate that or you can make a link between exactly. how you do it. So mm-hmm. it's communicable yes. to a certain extent. But of course, the real underlying feel that you have and the real underlying feel that mm-hmm. I have are perhaps different to the extent that uh, the of neural... Of course, yeah. that problem remains. But at least it's not a completely closed domain. Yeah. I have a, a, a way in with, with its limitations. Yeah. But, it's, but so, in, oh no, so inter- there's internal in, ineffability... But there's actually externally more of an openness now to to access qualia. But why do you think in the, in in other alternative in in views alternative to mine, mm-hmm. uh, this was not the case? Well, in, in 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 an alternative view, in your case, you would always insist on saying whatever the feel is, it is expressed in this sensory model loop of the world, mm-hmm. right? Well, that means overt behavior. In an alternative view. Qualia are very much experiential mm. states. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the wound or something. And you would say, well, we should just rely on introspection. People have to report to me because I have no access. Mm-hmm. You're saying I have access because I can look oh, okay. at the sensory motor loops. Because there is an objective. Yeah, a- there's an overt okay. expression. Okay, okay. Right? This would be a consequence. And that's then that, true. I think also a contrast between okay, that's true. these two approaches. You're so. right. The, in my case, there always has to be ultimately an, an objective uh, description in terms of visible behavior, behavior vis- exactly. that you yourself can mm-hmm. observe and therefore that right. others can observe. Exactly. Yeah. So that means yeah. the, the interpersonal ineffability problem, which is part of the heart problem as well, is perhaps slightly less you hard. Know, yeah. you, 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 partially over, you don't solve it, yeah. but you partially yeah. overcome it. You, you yeah. reduce its significance. Maybe you're right about that. That's, That's interesting. interesting. Okay. So, um, now the, the, so the second point was the structure, right? Structure. The structure of the, of the feel. So how do you explain... Uh, why, for example, red uh, 
can be compared to other colors, but it cannot be compared to the smell of onion, for example. Mm -hmm. If you have a physiological approach, then you'd say, well, there are these neurons in the brain that, that, are do with, that, that deal with color, and those neurons in the brain that are to do with smells, um, and um, they produce completely different uh, sensations, and they just can't be compared. And, and I say, well, why? Uh, why do they produce completely different sensations? And you're back to an infinite regress of possible questions about why this this type of neurotransmitter or this type of oscillation would produce smells rather than colors. <clears throat> Whereas in this sensory motor approach, uh, you solve the problem because the description you used to um, to describe the feel of red or the smell of onion must be couched in terms of a language that is, as you, we were just saying, is objectively measurable and corresponds to motions you can do in your environment, uh, changes in the incoming sensory information as a function of these motions, and it is potentially objectively describable in, in, in a physicist's terms. And so, for example, in the case of softness, uh, let's, let, 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 let's just take the example, say, of feeling softness and hardness. Clearly there, there's a link, because something that is soft, you squish it and it seeds under your pressure, whereas it, when it, if it's hard, you squish it and it doesn't seed under your pressure. So there, we seem to have a linear dimension going from things that seed under your pressure and things that don't seed under your pressure. So in the language of a physicist, or the language of objective observation, I can clearly see why it is that softness should have a linear dimension going from uh, very soft to very hard. But if we were arguing in terms of, uh, of neurophysiological uh, excitations, you know, um, um, saying, for example, that softness corresponds to uh, a low activation of some neural group and hardness corresponds to high activation, it's just not obvious why it should be that way around rather than the other way around. So we're in, back into the infinite regress. Mm -hmm. So I'm, with, with this view, uh, with a sensory motor view, it becomes clear uh, how to make the link between dimensions of sensory experience uh, and, uh, and objective uh, sensory motor laws. And we can also explain why, for example, uh, certain sensations uh, cannot be compared among themselves. So, for mm -hmm. example, if I compare the softness feel to uh, the feel of whistling, uh, there's not much you can say about, about the, the objective sensory motor laws involved. And so it seems natural that there should be no real possible comparison between the two. Mm -hmm. Just as there's no possible real comparison between the redness of red and the smell of an onion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but isn't there, in, aren't you in some sentence saying, look, well, structure's not a problem because there is no common framework for structure beyond then the sensory motor laws that I can use to describe feel. Sorry, there's no common framework? You seem to throw away a little bit this notion of structure, right? Because you say, look, I can scale this in different ways, and it's something that doesn't give me information on what the feel is. Because the only information I really have access to is this sensory motor law. Right? So, so I feel... So your, your, your criticism of structure was really to say, look, th there is no, let's say, common frame of reference, right? If, if you look at different kinds of feel across different modalities, for yep. instance. Yep. So that's why I should just your example of intensity and its neural correlates. Well, it could go up or down with respect to intensity in the auditory domain. Either way, right? right? It doesn't answer the, the neural, structure of the feel. The right? neural representation is just a code, right. and there's no reason why this 
part, this type of code should correspond to loud right. sounds rather than right. soft. Yeah. So the structure of the feel does not map into into a straightforward way into some sort of um, the organization of of the structure that might might give rise to it. The neural, if it, the if neural structure. If yes. we're trying to make a neural explanation, yes. we would have these difficulties because exactly. there's no way of mapping the the structure of sensory mm -hmm. experience to neural structures. Exactly. So now you're saying, or <clears throat> the logic would then be that you say, well, but the structure of feel does map onto the structure of sensory motor interaction, the sensory motor laws. Right. I'm saying there's a better chance yeah, of making so this but link. Can you give me a, an example of that mapping and how it can capture that that structure? So, so for example, that was what I was trying to do with softness, and I was saying, well, uh, I can ex explain the, the I can explain why soft things feel soft rather than feeling hard, mm -hmm. okay? And it's a linear dimension going from soft to hard, mm -hmm. and I can explain why it's that way rather than being the other way around. Because mm -hmm. what we mean by something being soft is that it seeds under your pressure, mm -hmm. whereas what you mean by something being hard is that it does not seed uh, under your mm -hmm. pressure. So, so I if I'm arthritic and I have difficulties to close my fingers with a certain speed, I would experience a sponge as being more hard. Perhaps, yes, yes, yes. That would be the prediction. Yeah. If, if, well, if you had not yet adapted, if you suddenly became mm -hmm. arthritic, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps over time when you adapt to the sure. fact that you're a, a okay. arthritic. Yeah. But then um, could you predict the structure of feel from the structure of the sensory motor interactions? Well, that would have to be my prediction, exactly, my, my hypothesis. I would have to my claim. Give an example? Well, softness. Only, but for instance, you also talked about, let's say, color, for instance, yeah. right? Yeah. So, 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 does, don't your studies in the psychophysics of, of color perception give you a second example of right. how structure of sensory interaction maps onto feel? Right. So, color, of course, is the uh, philosopher's prototype of uh, of a feel, and um, and so the most important thing for my theory to do is to apply it to color. If I could really explain the redness of red, that would be a real victory for for my uh, approach. <laughs> and although it does seem rather um, surprising to think about color in terms of sensory motor laws, uh, in terms of things you could do, you do uh, taking this approach has, has, um, has, has given me some interesting insights. And I have a paper with a um, mathematician, David Filippona is his name, a paper in um, uh, visual neuroscience, something like that. Uh, where I suggest taking the sensory motor approach to color, and I'm able to make some really uh, interesting uh, predictions ab about the redness of red, and mm -hmm. which are very uh, surprising. So mm -hmm. the idea is that instead of thinking of color as something that just comes into your eyes and creates a sensation uh, by generating the feel of red somehow, the idea is to say that what you mean by the redness of red is a law that uh, describes the way you interact with red things. Right. And so what might such a law be? Uh, uh, a, such a law might be the fact that, for example, when you take a red surface and you move it around under different lights, uh, the light coming into your eye changes uh, in certain predictable ways. And uh, what we were able to do, very surprisingly, is show that certain surfaces, uh, the laws that that they obey um, are very particular. And in particular, uh, red and green and blue and yellow are surfaces 
whose laws of behavior when you move them around under different lights are particularly simple. So this explains why red, yellow, green, and blue are, are what are often called focal colors or basic colors. Um, this is something that you might think is predicted by neurophysiology because a lot of neurophysiologists uh, would say, yes, well, we know already that there is a blue-green system in the retina and a, uh, sorry, a, a, um, a blue-yellow system and a red-green system, as well as a black-white system in the neural pathways. And so obviously uh, it makes sense to think that uh, red, yellow, green, and blue should somehow be special colors because you have these special systems in the brain. But it turns out if you look in detail at the, at the excita excitation of the blue-green the, the blue, yellow, and red-green systems, um, when they are maximally activated in the blue uh, direction or in the red direction or the green or the yellow direction, uh, these are not the cases when you actually see blue, green, red, and yellow. Uh, so the neurophysiology does not actually coincide with the, with the uh, sensation. But then I could say maybe the channels are mislabeled. Yeah. Some other combination of activity that will give you then these... Indeed, this and, phenomenal experience of color, and and that is indeed what color scientists do. They, these the 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 colors that are considered to be pure, are what uh, color scientists call unique hues, and uh, they go around measuring unique hues, and they they have been trying over the last decades to understand what combinations of the known neurophysiological color channels should be used in order to generate the unique hues that are observed, and they have in order to accurately generate uh, the predictions for unique uh, red, green, blue, and yellow, you have to have complicated nonlinear combinations of the, of the, uh, cone, um, of the cone excitations. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously it's going to be possible by making some nonlinear combination to predict unique hues, but you have no a priori reason to do so. And the question is, well, why is it this combination rather than that combination that gives you those unique hues? Whereas I'm actually able with... David Philippe and I, in our paper, we're actually able to predict the unique hues without any parameter adjustments, without any appeal to nonlinear neurophysiological combinations of neurophysiological channels. We're, uh, our paper actually shows precise prediction of, of unique hues without any such uh, arbitrary parameter fitting. Right. But now, in, if we talk about the experience of color and we try to relate that to this notion of the sensory motor. Um, contingencies that you're exposed to does it mean that I only ex experience color when I actually uh, move my eyes ah, so that that's that's a fundamental um, misconception when when people hear me talk and, and read my theory a lot of people think that it just can't be true because obviously you can see colors without moving obviously you can perceive without moving and that would be to misunderstand completely the theory. Because the theory doesn't say you have to perceive in order to... You don't have to move in, in order to perceive. Um, the theory says you have to have, at some time in your life, moved in order to perceive. Because uh, in order to, um, in order to ha perceive the sensory input you're getting at a, at a particular moment, you, you have to be able to categorize it as being part of sen some sensory motor law that you have previously experienced. So it suffices to have learnt the laws previously, and then when you get a sensory input that is compatible with one of the laws, well, then you identify it as being uh, as corresponding to that law, and so you what you perceive corresponds to that particular law. Okay. 
so that would mean that a fully immobilized um, advanced perceptual agent with immobilized eyes uh, from day of the moment of birth would not yeah. be able to develop color vision or the feel of color. Um, I think if it were in a totally static world also, mm -hmm. uh, I think it would not develop the notion of color as we know it. Because for us, what we mean by red mm -hmm. is a surface that behaves in certain ways right. under different lights. Mm -hmm. But if, if you're not able to move and, uh, at all and the world doesn't move, then red surfaces uh, can reflect different lights into your eye depending on what light is illuminating the red surface. You illuminate a red surface with purely blue light, then the light coming into your eye is blue and not red. And an agent that had never moved and, and could not move and whose environment never changed uh, would, would perceive it as blue and, and not red. Right. Which alternative also consider the possibility that not all movements have to be overt, but they can be like virtual. That let's say I inspect I inspect the visual scene by internally moving, let's say, a spotlight of attention without really relying on eye movements. Well, actually, I mean, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I would say that that what we mean by perceiving red uh, really requires us to actually have moved at some time mm -hmm. um, um, and previously, and and to associate the incoming sensory input with what we know about the laws that had previously occurred. Um, I don't think that, I don't want to uh, um, use virtual movements at all in this Okay. Because I really think that what we mean by sensory perception involves real motion. Mm -hmm. and, but then also combined with memory. Oh yes, yes, yeah? prior knowledge. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Okay, so then, so, so now, now we, we have an idea of structure. Um, so how about the presence of of these sensory motor contingencies or so, feel? Okay, so the real what is it like of a, of a, of a, of a sensory experience um, is really what the philosophers think is the great mystery, why some things have something it's like, whereas other other uh, other sensations, other sensory inputs don't have anything it's like, like for example vestibular input or glucose level or oxygen level in my blood, uh, I don't feel them in the same sense as I feel the redness of red. This is, this is perhaps the great mystery of, of consciousness. And I think the sensory motor approach provides an answer uh, in the following way. So the idea is, let's think about what we really mean when we say that there's something it's like to have a feel. And of course, when we think about what we mean by it, we want in the sensory approach, sensory motor approach, we have to think about it in terms of the sensory motor interaction with the environment that's involved. So if you really ask yourself uh, why there's something it's like to squish, squish a sponge, where, whereas there is no similar sensory presence to sponge squishing uh, when you're thinking about it. So if I'm thinking about squishing a sponge, there's nothing much it's like. It doesn't have the same sensory presence as when I'm actually doing it. So why is this? And the answer is that when I'm really squishing the sponge, well, I really am moving. I really am engaged with it. So what does this mean? It means that uh, my body is, 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 is involved in this motion. Uh, it means that uh, the changes that I, uh, that I affect in the... In, in the in my motor uh, activity, create immediate consequences on the sensory input. 
Whereas if I'm thinking about sponge squishing, um, uh, I can think as much as I like. It doesn't actually change the sensory input coming into my fingertips. Mm-hmm. So really what characterizes my real interaction with the world is the fact that making bodily motions changes the sensory mm-hmm. input. That's one thing that distinguishes real sensory input, input from imagined mm-hmm. uh, sensory input or from thoughts or mm-hmm. um, hallucinations, for example. However, there, there, there is this, this literature on the effect of imagery on, on the peripheral aspects of the nervous system where you might see that, let's say, the imagery of certain actions might lead to excitability of motor neurons in the spinal oh, yes. cord. Mm-hmm. So in, it's not that. So in some sense, th- th- these these higher level thought process, processes can percolate into the periphery, yep. but that you would then exclude as let's say a substitute of of such a sensory motor contingency. It has to really be at the sensory front end. I think yes. I think that uh, what really characterizes a a sensory interaction with the world. One of the things that characterizes it is what I call bodiliness, namely the, uh, the fact that when you move your body, there's a dramatic change in the sensory input. And even if, as you say, when you're imagining things, it may change the nature of your sensory receptors, for, for example, um, that is not a test of reality. Uh, it's not such a good, it's not a real test of reality. A real test of reality is, well, when you really do move, that things change. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, I think, you know, you can think about dreaming. Mm-hmm. How do you know that you're dreaming uh, rather than you're, that you're not dreaming? Well, uh, what you do is in your dream you say to yourself, well, I'm going to turn on the light. And if the light really does turn on, then, you, then you're likely not dream, dreaming. But if the light doesn't turn on, well, then you are dreaming. So it's a but, kind of rea- bodiliness is a reality mm-hmm. test. Okay, but then are you saying that imagined states have no feel? Or imagined states have a reduced feel yeah. by virtue of accessing memory. Uh, yeah, imagined states have less sensory presence. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, but then you also have this grabbiness, and you have bodiness, and you have insubordinateness. Right. <laughs> right. So, what does it actually really mean? Okay. So, so I have four concepts that I invoke in order to uh, characterize the what it is like of real interactions, sensory interactions with the world. The one that I just mentioned is bodyliness, the fact that sensory input changes dramatically when you move your body. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that's really important is, well, no, another thing that's perhaps not quite so important is what I call insubordinateness, Mm -hmm. which is that um, even though it's true that sensory input changes systematically and dramatically when I move my body around, um, there can be changes in sensory input when I don't move my body around. So the world um, is insubordinateness. Like a mouse can run across the floor uh, and change sensory input coming into my eyes without me moving my body. So the external world imposes itself upon my sensors because it has a life of its own. So it's not me that is completely controlling it through my bodiliness. Not, although my bodyliness, my body motions do create a very... Um, um, strong, strongly correlated change in sensory input. It is not totally subordinate to my body motions because the world has a life of its own and it can create some input that is independent of my bodily motions. So that's insubordinateness. Mm. It's another characteristic. And for example, uh, proprioception uh, does not have this insubordinateness. 
So that's one reason why I think we don't feel our proprioception. Proprioceptive sensors are, are, are very rich sensory input to our brains, and yet we don't consider them to be a sensory modality in the same sense as touch. Why is this? And I think the reason is that that whereas proprioception has a high degree of bodiliness in that whenever I move, proprioceptive input is systematically correlated, so it high, has high bodiliness, but it doesn't have any insubordinateness because it doesn't have a life of its own. Proprioception is determined completely by my voluntary motions. Mm -hmm. so, so you don't, having just bodiliness is not enough to characterize real, ex, uh, real information coming from the outside world. Right. And then there's grabbiness. Yes. So, so grabbiness is another fact about our sensory systems, uh, it is the fact that when some sudden event occurs in the visual field or in the auditory field, auditory uh, canal, uh, my attention is immediately and uh, incontrovertibly diverted to this, and my cognitive resources are attracted to this. And I think low-level sensory systems are hardwired up in the brain so as to interfere with cognitive processes and cause attention to be oriented towards them. And this, I think, this grabbiness, this ability to capture our attention is, is a particularity of the five main sensory modalities, which is not possessed by other sensory input, like the glucose level in my blood, for example, can change dramatically, um, and it doesn't kind of stop me thinking. It may make me lose consciousness, okay? But that stops me thinking in a rather indirect way, whereas seeing a flash of light or hearing a loud sound causes my attention to go to the loud sound or the, or the, or the light and process it, whereas the, uh, the glucose level mm -hmm. isn't connected to my higher-level cognitive processing in the same way. Mm -hmm. So that's grabbiness. Okay, but would you exclude that cognitive, cognitive states can have grabbiness? Aha, yeah, so you might think of uh, painful thoughts, for example, or obsessive thoughts. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I think it's true that once thoughts get to be so grabby that you cannot prevent yourself from orienting your attention towards them, that at that stage, people begin to say that thoughts have a feel. But if I ask you to think about red, I don't think that you would say that it has the same kind of feel as real red, when you're mm -hmm. uh, looking at real red, uh, has. But the, the still if... A thought can have this grabbiness mm -hmm. um, without a direct sensory motor contingency that it pertains to. How yeah. do you account for it? Well, I think that it has that it will be a, it'll be an experience of a different type. It won't be a sensory experience. It will be an experience, uh, but it won't have the same kind of sensory presence as do uh, the, the uh, experiences deriving from the five but sensory presence, modality. nevertheless. It right. might have what you call a presence, given that it has this grabbiness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But by virtue of memory again, or by virtue of something else? Ah, um, that's an interesting question. Um, yes, I don't know. I think that the particular, yes, I would imagine that, as in the case of feels for red or for softness, uh, your prior knowledge of having pre previously uh, been uh, been been engaging in the environment in this particular way, and your f and the fact that you have cognitively characterized that as being an an experience of what you call red or an experience of what you call soft, uh, those facts, uh, in other words, that n prior knowledge and memory play a role in in categorizing your experiences. So in the same way, if you're having a thought experience, like a painful thought that you have previously had, that th and categorized as such, that undoubtedly that will also play a role in mm -hmm. determining the nature of that experience. Why not? Right.
an equal for instance, I, I might find I might feel right now extremely jealous because of your beautiful sandals. So would this emotion have of jealousy have grabbiness in the same way? Yeah, well, now emotions is something that I really haven't thought about very much. I think that uh, you know, Damasio and uh, Ledoux, for example, have written a lot about emotions, and they talk about how uh, the um, bodily functions are are activated uh, uh, and. In, when, when you when you have these emotions and um, I think those really are bodily functions related to visceral functioning indeed that are that are that are modified when you have these emotions so your jealousy may make you sweat or make your heart beat or make you flush or something and um, the question is what is the feel of, of this jealousy uh, how could you describe it and so my approach I, I haven't really looked at it in detail but I, I don't see why my sensory motor type approach uh, could not also apply to, to emotions like this. I, I think essentially what I would want to say is that the, 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 the trick that I've used to get rid of the philosophical problem of qualia uh, in, in, in understanding a, a sensory experience is a trick of, of stopping reification, that's to say, of no longer looking in the brain for something that generates the experience. And I think that would be the key to, uh, to, to approaching the problem of emotions also. So instead of saying that something generates the jealousy or something generates the fear, what I would say is what we mean by fear is a mode of interaction with our environment. It means that uh, we are in a state where we are ready to run or uh, our bodies uh, have gone into a different mode of functioning where we, where our hearts are beating faster and maybe our viscera have slowed down their functioning and, 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 and the experience of fear is just constituted by all those things. Mm -hmm. And to search for something that generates the experience would be the same kind of philosophical error that has been previously made for life and for feel. Mm -hmm. Right, I understand. But now, isn't there, isn't there a risk that by, by taking this very operational stance, because in the end, you always have to bring it back to some sensory motor contingency that exists between the agent and the environment at some point in time. So everything has to be reduced to that. Don't you run the risk of ending up in the same position as, let's say, the behaviorists that in, in sort of wanted to minimize the role of, in, of uh, internal states beyond, let's yeah. say, reflexes, mm -hmm. sensory sensor sensor states and reactions to these sensor mm -hmm. states. Um, but in the end, it actually became a very complicated story that, that collapsed under its own complexity because yeah. you get, in the end, you started to talk about in, internalized sensory motor mm. uh, or reflex Re SR loops. loops, loops. Yeah, right. And, and, and it, it was really difficult to keep mm. this con coherent mm. with respect to, let's say, the whole domain of animal learning. Right. So isn't that also a risk for this approach you take now? Because also you are you know, committing yourself to take, take a look at the emotions, right? You have to go to this somatic interpretation of emotions to get the bodiliness in it, mm. that you can bring it back to sensory motor contingencies. But alternative views on emotion, of course, we don't really know what the truth is, but an alternative view might be, look, there are these intrinsic systems, uh, in the nervous system, completely dedicated to, to this kind of behavioral or the ex emotional expression, the emotional experience, and also the regulation of different components of mm. the nervous system using these emotional states. So, so don't you aren't you putting yourself too much in this corner of, of having to redefine everything in sensory motor terms, leaving little space for let's say 
additional phenomena to, to still exist as part of the phenomena we want to explain. Okay, so there's, your question, I think, really can be de decomposed into two parts. The first part is, is what I've been talking about just a modernized form of behaviorism? First question. And second question is, how do I deal with emotions? And so I think with regard to behaviorism, I think a lot of uh, readers of my papers have have thought that this is just another glorified version of behaviorism. But that would be a terrible error, because I really think that cognitive processing and uh, attention, for example, uh, are really important in, in, in my theory. There are indeed the sensory motor loops involved in squishing the sponge. You have low-level loops that are doing the control of your sponge squishing, and maybe you have low-level stimulus response behaviorist type uh, uh, loops that are going on there. But then I additionally suggest that there is a higher cognitive level which looks down on what's going on at the lower level and, and, ca and, and uh, categorizes it as the notion of softness. So what so the, the cognitive uh, part looks down on the sensory motor loop and says, that's what I'm going to call softness. Mm -hmm. And the experience uh, derives from um, both going on at the same time. You only have the exper experience of softness if you are both engaged in squishing the sponge and attending to the fact that mm -hmm. you are so engaged. Okay. So now, it's not behaviorism because there's this important cognitive component mm -hmm. that is that is that is categorizing and classifying and, mm -hmm. and becoming aware and attending to the presence of this engagement with the environment. And as regards emotions, um, so you said maybe there, am I not, uh, am I not evacuating a, a mm -hmm. possible uh, uh, additional uh, non-sensory motor type? Uh, exactly. S source of feel. Right? Source that might be generating the feel somehow. Mm -hmm. But my my intuition, but I haven't thought about emotions enough, my intuition would be to take that stance would be again to making the error of reification. Mm -hmm. And why not adopt, go the whole hog, you know, go the whole way and just use the same approach again with regard to emotion and say, well, no, nothing. is. It's a, mis it's a philosophical error. It's what the philosophers call a category error mm -hmm. to try and look f for something that generates emotions. Emotions are not generated by neural by neural mechanisms. No, emotions are just ways of interacting with the environment. It's not like the feel of red, which is one way of interacting. It's like the it's it's the way you interact when you are afraid constitutes the emotion of fear. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm. I, it, it's a it's a playing the scientific trick again sure. of de-reifying mm -hmm. what we mean mm -hmm. by. Uh, an emotion and and uh, giving up essentially the 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 search for something that generates it in the brain mm -hmm. and just saying well what we mean by fear is mm -hmm. this set this way of interacting mm -hmm. with the world but now and there need be nothing sensory motor about it mm -hmm. okay the motor aspect that i invoke to explain sensations like hearing seeing touch taste and smell the reason i have the motor component there is because these are extraceptive senses. They are senses that distinct that that, are, that have a, the quality of being outside the body, and it's really motion of your body which determines what your body is. And mm -hmm. so that's why motion is important. Mm -hmm. Perhaps perhaps for emotions rather than these extraceptive extraceptive senses, uh, perhaps the body motion is less important, and you could have a a theory which was not a sensory motor theory, but which nevertheless abandoned the error of reification. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, so so what. With the rarification, um, for instance, there, there are people who argue, look, the thalamocortical system 
is a fundamental component to, let's say, feel, right? Because if we have patients with lesions to their, let's say, interlaminar nuclei, they lose consciousness. There's no more feel. They're like zombies, right? So, and in some sense, I could say, well, I could possibly fool Kevin because I could give him a zombie, and the zombie engages in all these sensory motor contingencies that, that completely satisfies his idea of squishiness and so on. And I know it's not feeling a thing because it's a zombie. Mm-hmm. And this zombie could actually be a, a robot that I program, right? I could have my, my, my robot that performs all sort of squ- squishing, uh, squeezing operations on different objects. I have a little classifier on top that's this cognitive layer. Um, I could I could argue, look, it performs all these actions, but it doesn't feel a thing. Hang on, I've, I've, I've lost you a little bit there. Are we talking about fear or sponge squish, uh, softness? No, no, I, I jumped out of fear. Okay, okay? So, so let's summarize then. You're saying... Could it, would it be possible to get a zombie who did all the, had all the sensory motor dependencies with regard to softness but did not feel the softness? Right, so I was, I was dealing with the issue of the verification because with emotions yeah. you want to jump out of it okay. as well, which I understand. But mm-hmm. I was trying to push back a little bit and say, hell, but wait, you could argue that specific lesions to the brain, right, like in the, in the laminar nucleus of the thalamus, would lead leads to a loss of feel. Right, of subjective experience. So that brings me down to this topic of the zombie. And, saying, and I could actually build a zombie in the form of a robot. That was, was sort of how I was summarizing those, those, summarizing those steps. So the question would be, what, what would be missing in, in my zombie that I would build in the robots I have upstairs, right, with respect to your theory? How would you not be fooled by my zombie? So, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question, okay? But let's do it. I'm, I, see, I'm not really familiar enough with the anatomy of emotions uh, to be able to argue or, or talk sensibly with you about it. So let's, let's do what you were suggesting, namely apply it to softness. Mm-hmm. Okay? Sure, so, that's fine. So what would be a softness zombie? It would be somebody, wh- which would be the bit that you would excise out of his brain mm-hmm. so that he would become a, a zombie in the case of softness feel? Mm-hmm. Well, what would it do? I mean, how would it affect the actual... Right, so, so let, let's build a robot, okay? It's okay. easier. So I have a robot. The robot has a hand. I have some upstairs, actually, like, like an iCup humanoid robot. It'll be squeezing stuff. Yeah. You show it objects, it will squeeze them. Right. And it will squeeze them, let's say, in a way that's fully consistent with how you have characterized this in humans, let's say. Yeah. Um, now I could argue, and then... In my control architecture, I need to, to sort of locate objects, grasp them, squeeze them, release them. Uh, I generate sensor feedback because I have sort of haptics on my fingertips of little sensors. And now I just classify these states, have some classifier that now says, okay, hard, soft, and so on. It would satisfy roughly, I think, the theory of, of realizing the sensory motor contingencies mm-hmm. and classifying them. Those has this Okay, now, we, now you right. need the bodiliness, grabbiness. You need the grabbiness. So. I would need the grabbiness. Um, it would not have any sense of grabbiness because grabbing stuff is all it does and squeezing stuff, right? No, you'd have to build a thing in such that if suddenly as it was squeezing the sponge, a needle pricked into its finger, mm-hmm. that its cognitive resources would be... Uh, would, would be some orienting... That, that, that we can do. That's sort of, sort of some sort of exception detector, yeah. right? So, so that, that, that's an easy one. So what else is missing? Uh, well, it has the bodyliness. It has, yeah. it has everything now. Okay, so would you say this robot has feel? Yes, Okay, so that robot would have solved the qualia problem. Yeah. Okay. So then we're very close. That's cool. Okay, <laughs> very good. <laughs> that gives me hope. But so, um, so the other thing is then, um, 
If I could go to other aspects of feel, I could become psychotic, which is more difficult to do in a robot. So, so before we, you've got me thinking here. The people listening to us may be a bit shocked, you know, because we've just been talking about a robot and we built all this stuff in, and now the robot feels. Yeah. But I, I submit to them who are listening to us mm. that you know this is what insects, you know, for example. Would you say that insects feel? Uh, would you say that um, flies feel? Uh, I mean, mice feel or slugs feel? I have no problems with that. Right. So it's really a matter of definition, and I'm saying that if you build, if that where you put the where you put the boundary between feeling and not mm-hmm. feeling is just a matter of, of of choice. And my my tack on this is that if it has if it has the 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 qualities of sensory of of bodiliness, insubordinate, etc., grabbiness, uh, then it's very much like what we do. And so I would mm-hmm. consider it to be sort of racist with regard to. Uh, uh, these other agents right. or animals to d- say that they do not feel. Right. However, if I understand it correctly, mm-hmm. real experiences, mm-hmm. but they also don't have a function. It's just mm-hmm. one subset of the possible ways of interacting with the world that humans have. Okay, so you say we should not pose these, these questions at this level, like what's the function of X? Yeah. Well, not in this case, anyway. I don't think life has a function. I don't think feel has a function. I don't think consciousness has a function mm-hmm. because they're just words that describe the way we interact with the world. We could could ask, why do we, like, let's let's be more specific and say, why do we interact with the world in this way rather than that way? Mm -hmm. So let's, so, so for example, why do I interact with the, uh, why am I conscious of the red light where I stop, Mm -hmm. when I stop my car, uh, rather than being not conscious of it? no, I don't know whether that's a meaningful question. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I am conscious of it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm not conscious of it. If I'm talking to mm-hmm. uh, my fellow in in the, in the car, no. I, but I, would I, you be willing to talk about the function of vision, let's say, or the, the the function of having hands? Would you be willing to to consider that question? Also, that you would say, look, this really doesn't matter. That that these functional questions, or these more teleological, yeah, it's dangerous, isn't it? Are I, I think they're I, essential. I feel that I think they're okay. essential. It's certainly coupled with feel, but I didn't write your book, right? So okay, so I think I understand. So you're saying one could say of humans that the function of having hands is that it will enable them to survive better, essentially. Yeah, to, to also engage in certain interactions with certain objects, certain yeah. sizes, food handling, whatever, defense, God knows what. Okay, so right. why not ask the same question for exactly. uh, feel? Yeah, and I would say, how do what I say? I say, well, the real question is, uh, when you say. Um, hmm. the real question is well let's take red then Mm -hmm. the feel of red why does red have a feel rather than not Mm -hmm. having a feel Uh, what is the function of it having a feel rather than no feel if if, if you really ask what you mean by red having a feel what Mm -hmm. I said is what what you really mean by red having a feel rather than not having a feel is that it has this sensory presence that's to say Mm -hmm. that it uh, it can attract your attention if it changes right. suddenly it uh, it changes very much when you when you move uh, your body around um, um, why why are things that way rather than exactly. not being that way hmm. you have me a bit stumped there because, right. no, but it's yeah. interesting right because yeah. apparently if we go from hands to red yeah. there seems to be some strange transition Okay, and so the question is: Do are we entering a regime of of 
of interrogation where we say, look, now we're here, we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. Here it doesn't matter. But yeah. below some boundary it does. And is it then gradual or is it some discrete transition? So I, I admit I'm slightly stumped there. But while I think about it, let me ask you a question. What is the function of life? So do you think there? I mean, you, you went from hands to, to mm -hmm. red and I was stumped. Now let's go from hands to life. Mm -hmm. Aren't you going to be stumped there? No, because to me, life indeed has no function as such, except reproduction. But, but so why why does... Ah. So, but why... So but, it maintains itself, right, in that sense. So that's, I'm willing to... But that's what we mean that. by life. That's not its function. It's, it's, it's part of what we mean by being alive, is that it, that it replicates, it remains... Well, you have agents that can be alive and don't replicate. They just don't okay, well, that it maintains its function, yeah. like memes. Right. Memes also maintain themselves. Right. No, so but are they just, alive? Yeah. But I would, I would search in that direction. I would not be stoned by it. I might make a massive mistake, but I, this is roughly where I would go with my answer, right? And and I think with regard to life, you mean? Yeah, yeah. So how would how could I do that with regard to red? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to think about this. No, but this is there. There's an interesting challenge here, right? Yeah. So so. The, the, this is not necessarily also, a, a, let's say, a flaw in the theory. I think it is an interesting, because what is nice is that what is actually powerful of what you're proposing, now we can pose this question. Okay, and, and we have a framework in which we can start to address it. And that's why I first tried to do it through the sensory motor contingencies. But that might not be enough. I just don't know. Hmm. But that's something we have to investigate. So now to, to finish up, I have two questions. So, you're, uh, so now you, you just published this book and also sort of expressing... A long tradition of work, including um, co-inventing or inventing uh, change blindness as, as as a phenomenon, which has given rise to a large number of experiments. So, so building on this experience, also in different disciplines, different domains, now attacking this really hard problem of, of consciousness and qualia. What's what's the one law of, of Kevin O'Regan that we should uh, keep in mind when we study mind, brain, and behavior? Yeah, I would say it's this law of uh, abandon. Reification, that would be my law. Abandon, okay. abandon s magical substances. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no more myths. Right. And then the second thing is, um, since we're doing science, we want to do predictions. And I would like to come visit you five years from now, wherever you are. And I, just, just to annoy you, I want to say, look, five years back you made this prediction. Today I want to know whether it really came out. So what's this one prediction you really would like to make today? I haven't thought about that. What prediction? I would really like to uh, do more work uh, on color because I think mm. I've really got a handle on color here and it's very, very exciting. Um, and also the sensory substitution work. Uh, I really think it should be possible to make more realistic uh, sensory substitution uh, devices, in, not so much for vision, for replacing vision, but perhaps for auditory perception. Mm -hmm. You know, people are using cochlear implants a lot to, uh, to, as prostheses for deaf people. But I, I would have thought that it would be really possible to make an efficient, uh, say, tactile uh, prosthesis for mm -hmm. deaf people. Okay, that's your prediction. Five years from yeah. now, we're going to have one. Yeah, ten years. Ten years. No, no, I asked for five. Five years. Okay. <laughs> okay, Kevin O'Regan, thank you very much for this interview. And thank you, Paul. Very interesting.
The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.